This is The Reason Interview with Nick Gillespie. Thanks for listening. My guest today is the Edgar Award-nominated mystery writer and Reason contributor Kat Rosenfield. Her new novel is You Must Remember This, an unputdownable gothic whodunit set in Maine that I just devoured the minute that I got a copy of it. She's also one of the most fearless and interesting cultural critics at work today, and she joined me in conversation in February at a live event in New York City that we call The Reason Speakeasy, a monthly unscripted conversation with outspoken defenders of free thinking and heterodoxy. And man, she is both of those. The Speakeasy doubles as a live taping of this podcast, and you can check the show notes or go to reason.com slash events to find out more about the next live event if you're in the New York City area. Always provides a great evening of camaraderie and conversation about cutting-edge topics and ideas. With Kat, I talked about the persistent appeal of the mystery genre, and particularly gothic literature. We talked about how gender politics play out both in fiction and the stories we tell, but in the business of the publishing world. And we talked about her recent essay and video for Reason, which was titled Stop Spazzing Out About Spaz, Social Media, Streaming, and a New Era of Digital Self-Censorship, which looks at the very troubling ways in which artists such as Lizzo, Beyonce, and Taylor Swift are actually internalizing the values of cancel culture. And we discussed her provocative essay on cultural appropriation for Unheard, which is called Is It Racist to Like Big Butts? Here is The Reason Interview with Kat Rosenfield. Kat, thank you so much for talking. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right, so you must remember this is, what is this, your fourth novel? Fifth. Fifth, okay. And that includes the one with Stan Lee. Yes. Which is kind of exciting, right? I, I, how many of the boys in the room would like, I would love to have collaborated with Stan Lee, right? So... She got to. Yeah, the boys. I, I don't know that many girls grew up saying, like, I wish that I could collaborate with Stan Lee, but you got to. Yeah, I uh, believe me. Is my ex-wife out there? I'm sorry. <laughs> but, well, let, let's talk about You Must Remember This. This is a, I mean, how do you, how do you describe this book? Is it a genre work or? Yeah, we would call this a gothic mystery. And um, you must remember this uh, takes place in 2014 on the windswept coast of Maine in Bar Harbor. A fractured family has gathered for what they imagine will be their matriarch's last Christmas. Uh, her name is Miriam Caravasios. She has dementia. She's 85 years old. And they assume that she will be dead within a year. When Miriam dies, she's going to leave behind about $20 million. So tensions are high. Everyone wants to get in, maybe get in good to kind of secure their inheritance before the inevitable happens. On Christmas Eve, in the middle of the night, Miriam steps out of the house. She walks out onto the frozen reach. She falls through the ice and dies, and it's a terrible accident. Or was it? Yes, so, is it. so on the cover, some of the lines are old money, dark secrets, cold blood. It's a really wonderful read. I mean, and this, I can say this because now I'm technically at work, but I dodged a lot of work to finish the book as soon as I started reading <laughs> it, and which is the best kind of novel, right? Where you are like, I'm putting everything to the side until I finish this book. The protagonist of the novel is a young woman named uh, Delphine. Um, who is she and why is she the center of the book? So Delphine is Miriam's granddaughter, and uh, she has fled New York City, uh, an uncomfortable, embarrassing, humiliating situation in New York City, to come back and help care for her grandmother. But what she's really doing is kind of running away from her life and embedding herself in her grandmother's story. It's her grandmother's history, which she has very romantic ideas about. Um, Delphine is is the person who, in the wake of Miriam's death, starts to wonder if maybe it wasn't an accident, starts to investigate things on her own. Um, but she, as, she do, as she's doing this, she uncovers, and we as the reader uncover through a second timeline that takes place during Miriam's youth, that her life story was much more complicated and tragic than anybody might have imagined. And then her mother, uh, Miriam's daughter uh is um she was married but her husband left her mm -hmm. 
And this is kind of in opposition or contraposed to Miriam. Uh, uh, Miriam had the she married the love of her life, right? A, a, a boy from the wrong side of the bay, so to speak. <laughs> yes. So uh, we talk a little bit about that. What you know? What what is the appeal? I guess I you know it's hard. You don't want to do spoilers, but you know what what is the appeal of um, you know, you think the situation is one way and a family has a, a set number of narratives that it tells about itself or mythology. And then you start finding out that like your grandmother was somebody very different than what you thought. Yeah, it's a lot about how we self-mythologize. It's also about what stays with us as we move through life. Um, Miriam's dementia is a major factor there. And um, one of the things that was uh, really important to this book was um, my relationship with my grandmother, who passed away really early on in COVID. Um, she was 105, so it was not like unexpected. <laughs> but, um, but she also had dementia, and she didn't really remember much of anything from probably the past 20 to 30 years. And uh, an interesting thing about trying to have a relationship with somebody who's in that kind of state is that you really have to meet them where they are. For my grandmother, that was really about meeting her um, when she was because she would sort of travel uh, in her own mind and occupy these memories that were incredibly vivid to her, even though they were, you know, 60 or 70 years old. Um, one of my very, very favorite stories of hers was in, I guess, 1932, when she was 17, she applied to be a coat check girl at the Roseland Ballroom in Chicago. And they told her she could not do this because she wasn't pretty enough. They told her this right to her face. It was a very different time. And um, she was as salty about this as if it had happened like last week. She was still so mad. And um, so, you know, having these stories be told to me and kind of like living through them with her um, made me think a lot about, you know, what is it that we keep with us as we move through life? It's probably not what you necessarily expect it to be. And how you sort of think of your past and how you think of yourself as you come to the end is not necessarily what other people see. Uh, talk, I mean, that's the older person, but then, you know, the younger person, how do, uh, you know, how do, how do you deal with that material? I mean, in, in the book, there's a particular, you know, kind of path for uh, Delphine, but, you know, how do you do that as a, as a person whose life is in front of them? Well, the I think one of the things about having these two timelines um, was that, you know, these two women's stories, even though they're so very far apart chronologically, they really exist in conversation with each other. And the narrative interweaves in such a way that you can see echoes of each life in the other. Um, Delphine's uh, great error is that she romanticizes this story. She thinks too much of it. She like, makes too much of it in her own mind. And it blinds her to things that I won't talk about mm -hmm. because they are spoilers. Yeah. Right. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's very much about that. You know, how do we mythologize ourselves and our relationships and our own family members? What's the role of money? Because this, you know, I mean, the re and this is, it's a remarkably well done uh, kind of family situation. And, you know, this kind of, it's not a locked room, but it's, you know, the it's claustrophobic, the environment at Christmas, because it's a bunch of, people who are vultures, really, who dislike the mother for the most part, the grandmother, but are coming back there to make sure that they get a piece of whatever's left. Uh, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it's, um, you know, how does, how does money, uh, you know, there's a mythology about love and romance and, and marriage and that type of thing. But then there's also, you know, money plays a major role. How does that kind of intersect with things? Well, both women are engaged. I think it's not, um, you know, too much of a spoiler to say that they're, they're, they each are engaged in romances with somebody who doesn't share this wealthy background. Uh, you know, Miriam in her time falls in love with a local fisherman and marries him despite her father and mother being relatively disapproving of this. Delphine in her timeline um, is having a little affair with uh, Miriam's male nurse, uh, her, her Care caregiver. Taker, Sorry, caretaker. Yes. No, he's not a nurse, yes. right? He's, yeah. a, he's a personal caregiver. That's right. <laughs> and um, so, you know, similarly, this is a sort of uh, two different sides of the, the tracks romance. Um, you know, she is both fearful of what her family will think, but also kind of plays up the romance of it in her own mind. You know, this is a chance to be defiant in a certain way, to declare sort of independence. Um, money is something that Delphine is 
mostly embarrassed by. Uh, and, you know, historically in her in her family, her mother was also kind of embarrassed by it. So that creates almost more of a problem for, for this family to reckon with than if they had really just kind of embraced that they're obscenely wealthy. It, it comes with its own set of problems to try to deny this part of who they are. Have you always been interested in kind of the Gothic? Oh, sure. Why? I mean, and the Gothic, I mean, it, you, on, on some level, mystery novels or maybe murder mysteries, um, the Gothic, they, it, when I say it seems like a female form, it, it definitely has an appeal, right? I mean, this is, you know, Charlotte uh, or Emily Bronte. Um, it, obviously, there are male Gothics and things like that, but it, it seems to have a particular purchase on a feminine understanding of the world. Yeah. Um, oh gosh, I wish I could remember my my friend, the novelist Lee Stein, had this great uh, like monologue that she did on TikTok of all places about why gothic fiction is such a, a kind of a woman's game. And it was all about how the how there's always a house in a in a gothic novel that's almost a character unto itself. Um, you know, it's Manderley or it's um, you know the house they live in uh, in the castle. You know, we've always lived in the castle. And she was saying that the house ends up representing the mind and the psyche of the female character. Um, I wish that I had given it that much thought writing this book, but mainly the fact that there's this big mansion and it was born of the fact that during the pandemic, I spent a lot of time doing recreational zillowing, mm. just, yeah. <laughs> just looking at, at old 15 room mansions on the coast that, uh, you know, I thought I might like to buy one day. I don't know. How, in, a, in a way, this is a, uh, a pandemic novel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's because you can't really do anything. I mean, the people are stuck in this location. How uh, do you think the pandemic has, you know, has created like gothics, you know, gothic novels or gothic stories that we haven't yet figured out who's where's the ghost hiding or, you know, where is the eruption going to happen? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, the pandemic, um, you know, for me was a real inspiration in terms of like my my first Christmas back at my parents' place uh, after my grandmother had passed away, um, it was in you know it was December 2020, and I was walking around my hometown, and it was really really foggy, and everything was shuttered. You know, you had houses that had lights on, but you would never see another person. I really felt like I was the last person left on Earth, and um, and then you know of course this fog rolled in on the, the Hudson River, um, which my hometown is located next to, and so it started to seem like there was nothing actually in existence outside the 20 foot radius of where I was standing. And, um, you know, I, I did seem like a very kind of a lonely, isolated time. And I spent a lot of time walking around looking at these houses and wondering what people were up to in there, you know, maybe something bad. Right. <laughs> or something more interesting than what you were doing. Right. Which was walking my dog. Yeah. yeah. Not so fun. Um, to kind of shift into um, your your regular writing for Unheard and places like Reason, you recently wrote a column uh, earlier this year in January, um, which was titled uh, something like, What's Wrong with Violent Fiction? Question mark. And you were responding to a kind of complaint that is out there about some of the types of work that you write about and other people do that, you know, shows, you know, violence. It, it represents violence. It could be against women. It could be against other people. And you, um, you, you were talking about Don Winslow, who is a very popular novelist. He wrote a series of really powerful novels about the drug war in, in profound ways. And that he is now spends a lot of time making anti-Trump videos for Twitter and seems to really have deranged himself in that. But he was answering these questions of, you know, because people are saying like, how can you show violence in literature? You are traumatizing me as a reader. Um, and he asked, how do we ethically portray violence in crime fiction? There's violence in your book. Um, do you care about showing this ethically or what does that mean in terms of you as a, as a novelist or as a writer? Oh, gosh. I mean, the thing about that Don Winslow piece that you were talking about is, I mean, his books are so great and that piece was so bad. <laughs> it was um, just, you know, so meandering and came to no conclusions. And I, I think that's because there really are no conclusions that a person can reach 
about how to ethically do this. Everybody has a slightly different line, but you know, the real purpose of a piece like that is to write it so that you can show people that you really reckoned with this. It's like, look, I really wrestled with this and now I'm going to write somebody murdering somebody else with an ax, but I cared, you know, before I did it. So this is like <laughs> ethically, ethically ground meat, right? <laughs> they live their best life right up until the moment they're killed. <laughs> yeah. Um, is that, I mean, is it important to ethically represent violence or, or does fiction need to be ethical on some level? Does it need to teach a lesson? Does it need to model the, you know, the, the elevated human spirit? I mean, I don't think so. I think that what violence in fiction does, and, and maybe this is in itself a form of elevation is that it gives a, a sort of a sense and a logic and a sophistication to something that in real life often lacks that most instances of real life violence are so intensely stupid it's like you know you you scratch the surface of a given you know somebody takes somebody's life and it's like well he cut me off in traffic and i got mad you know or i didn't love my wife anymore but divorce is expensive and it's you know it's it's so or i mean or it's like you know uh, somebody kneeling on a person's a cop kneeling on a person's neck for 7 minutes and you know it's the banality of evil and it's it's senseless and it's kind of offensive in its senselessness and so you know to Write something that has an internal logic. I mean, whatever you want to say about murders that take place in murder mysteries, they're always there's always a reason. Um, it always makes a certain kind of sense, and it makes sense in a way that I think it often doesn't in real life. Do you um, it, it, do you agree? And I'm not sure that I do, but I know a lot of people have talked about this, and actually, uh, some women have said, you know, that. The primary audience for kind of true crime murder shows and things like that is overwhelmingly female. Is Do you think that's true? And if so, what does that kind of speak to? I think it's true, but I think it's only true insofar as women have always been kind of the consumers of, of stuff like this. I don't think, I mean, there are theories out there that women gravitate towards this kind of thing, um, you know, by way of making sense of a world in which they're so often victims of violence. And I mean, that sounds pretty, but I think it's kind of horseshit. <laughs> so then what is it? Um, I mean, women are the ones who read novels by and large, um, just kind of broadly. Um, they're the ones who are, you know, consuming true crime narratives. And I don't think that it necessarily has much more to do with with anything except that the fact uh, except excuse me <clears throat> except the fact that women gravitate towards fiction um and dramatization more than men do and it just has a lot of violence in it yeah i mean men you know love reading war stories which obviously have a lot of violence in them maybe you know that's the the kind of difference even between... better we like to tell war stories that we didn't participate in right right <laughs> Women don't so much, but they fabricate having diseases that they don't actually have. <laughs> right. Okay. So, you know, we're just two uh, sides of the same horrible coin, right? The fiat, <laughs> the mental fiat currency or something. All kinds of liars. So in Unheard, you wrote, and I think I put this in the invitation to this event uh, because the headline, and of course, uh, you know, writers don't often write their own headlines, but this was pretty uh, great. This was for Unheard in early January, and the article was titled, Is It Racist to Like Big Butts? <laughs> and this was a, a kind of review or a reflection on a recent book. But I mean, I guess, and it, it talks about cultural appropriation and the limits of that concept. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But I guess just as a starting point, is it racist to like big butts? It's not racist I to like. It's not racist to like big butts. You're okay. okay. You're all okay. Yeah, like them. <laughs> so, what was going on with that? I mean, this book. Uh, it's called Butts by Heather Radke. I actually Butts, a backstory. Oh, excuse me. By <laughs> Heather Radke. So it's clever, right? But um, and you talk about it. I mean, it's a kind of interesting cultural history of you know, uh, ample derrieres through in, in mm -hmm. recent history. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I actually enjoyed this book in spite of, you know, taking exception to some of its 
premises, especially when it starts to lean heavily into this racialized lens. But I think that that was sort of unavoidable just because of when the book was written. Um, Heather Radke is an NPR reporter. And, um, you know, this book was written in 2020. It's sort of the height of the, you know, racial reckoning that we were going through. So I think it was probably always going to be thus, this subject material being attacked at this particular time. Um, Unfortunately, it's kind of a missed opportunity. I mean, this is a, a book about the cultural history of butts in which gay men are not mentioned at all, which seemed like an oversight to me, Um, and in which it's sort of postulated that, um, you know, the appreciation for butts aesthetically is something that um, doesn't come about naturally, you know, in humanity writ large, but that it was rather kind of appropriated from, uh, you know, the black male gaze, which, you know, she... And in this case, that's kind of okay. To, right? the, to, the black male gaze towards big butts is kind of okay, but not if you're a white man or a white woman. Right. Well, I mean, the real, the real sticky point is uh, if you're a white woman who has a big butt you know, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, you got a lot of answer to it. Yeah, where'd, you, you, where'd you get that? Yeah. <laughs> and is, so is that, I mean, it's an attack on the Kardashian family. <laughs> they, are, they are mentioned at length and not in very friendly terms, yeah. Um, one of the things that's interesting in your discussion of the book is, you know, or, or there's this question of Miley Cyrus twerking at what the Video uh, Music Awards, I think. Yeah, or, that was like 2013 or yeah, something. Yeah, and I mean, I know I, you know, I I kind of have repressed that memory, but this was, you know, it was seen as an, you know, a horrible act of cultural appropriation, twerking is seen as a, you know, a, a kind of African-American, a black dance. How do you deal with something like that? And it, it's unseemly when somebody like Miley Cyrus acts that way. Yeah, I mean, that that part of the book was really interesting because in kind of presenting the cultural history of twerking, the person that she used as a lens was actually a uh, male drag queen in New Orleans um, who... Uh, you know, she says that uh, this person uses all pronouns, but I, I got curious and I looked it up and it's, you know, it's he, him everywhere. So this is a man. Um, and so the assertion being made essentially is that twerking, which is a, you know, a dance movement that basically simulates what a woman's body does during sexual intercourse is more off limits to a white woman than it is to a, a guy, which seemed right. a little curious. Um, yeah, uh, uh, you know, this seems like an obvious lead into a story that you wrote for reason that uh, you had a very busy January. Uh, so this, uh, came out in mid January and the title, I don't know who wrote it. I certainly did not, but it's stop spazzing out about spaz. Can you explain what the premise of that story was? Okay. From butts to spaz. I'm going to be so canceled after this. Yeah. Um, so, uh, in over the summer, I don't remember what month it was anymore. Um, it was last year, like last spring. Yeah, yeah, it was like probably June. Lizzo and then Beyonce in rapid succession released songs which contained the word spaz, which, um, you know, if you grew up in the 90s, as I did, you would know this is kind of maybe even a term of endearment, like, oh, you're such a spaz. Um, and then in the black community, the word is like, uh, it's like a verb and it describes that you're about to basically fight somebody. Um, so overseas in the UK and in Australia, this is actually a very offensive term. Probably the closest analog that we have in American English is retard. Um, so spaz denotes somebody who has spasms and, uh, they call them spastics over there. So anyway, very offensive to people from certain parts of the world. Somebody caught wind of the fact that there was this word in Lizzo's song. Uh, She tweeted about it angrily. Lizzo capitulated immediately and was like, I'm removing this word from my song. I'm putting in something different. Um, When Beyonce released an album, you know, I guess a few weeks later, same word, same scenario. She also capitulated, although she didn't say anything herself. She just released a statement through her PR team that they were going to get rid of the word. And the word was, um, you know, uh, redacted and replaced in this seamless way. So it's as though the original song never existed at all. Right. And that what's particularly interesting about this is 
you you can argue about whether or not spaz, particularly in the way they were using it, was offensive or they should have done it. But you focus on how in a in a world of digital streaming services where we don't really own, you know, things like this are becoming less and less. Material objects are less and less where culture resides. It's streaming services. It's Kindle books, which can be evaporated. Like, you know, Amazon can take those. I assume they can change them, but that you, it is hard to find the pre-redacted um, version of the Lizzo song or the Beyonce song. Um, what are what are some of the implications of that? Why why is that worrisome to you? I mean, I think it's I mean it's obviously a form of censorship, but I think what's insidious about it is that it's a form of censorship that rewrites history in real time and leaves no trace of what was there before. So all you have is your memory of it and you know, are you sure? Are you sure you remember it that way? It's, it's um, you know, in writing this piece, there was a lot of discussion um, with Catherine Mangu Ward, my editor of, um, you know, the Orwellian Ministry of Truth. But I was also, it's also a little gaslight, you know, um, and a little eternal sunshine of the spotless mind where, you know, this new thing is created and the original just doesn't exist anymore. And if you insist that you heard it that way, someone is going to be like, well, you know, prove it. Where is it? Why, you know, why don't I, why can't I see it? Um, and, you know, when it's something like a song and there's an announcement, that's one thing, at least there's a record of it having been done. But um, I think so much of this stuff, you'll find that things are being just kind of nipped out out of, you know, seamlessly out of films, out of books, out of songs with no announcement. It's, there's no transparency. You have no idea that it happened except that you stumble across whatever it is and your memory doesn't match what's there anymore. Yeah. And you, you point out that this isn't exactly new, uh, you know, so, you know, for instance, movies, you know, when they appear on TV, they get clipped, words get blip, bleeped out and things like that. But it's so seamless now that it's it's functionally a different way of of kind of censoring or rewriting the past or the present and i th i think it's in that essay where you talk about how uh ray bradbury with fahrenheit 451 which is an, a book about you know burning books and getting rid of them um that book itself at various times and he didn't even know about it was uh, you know, people changed the words in the book because they wanted it to be palatable for school children and things like that. And I think in 1979, he actually republished an edition that was the book that he actually wrote. So mm -hmm. yeah, we he live in this world now where this kind of stuff is happening all the time. Yeah. Bradbury was pissed when he found out that they were doing that. Yeah. He uh, seemed to be pissed a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yes. but it's, um, do you think over... In, in a general sense, are we too sensitive as a society, particularly when it comes to kind of cultural expression and free expression? I don't know. I mean, sensitivity is in the eye of the beholder. What troubles me more is this urge to eradicate something that makes us uncomfortable um, so that it's as though it never existed and so that it cannot be reckoned with. You know, you have all these things that are artifacts of a different time when there were different sensibilities. And the urge now is to paper over them, to make them unavailable, to just, you know, to act like they never existed at all. And that seems like a missed opportunity to me. What, what, what are we missing um, by not, I mean, you would prefer, you know, I guess you can do this on Wikipedia and some, some uh, journalistic outlets do this where they'll list the corrections or the changes over time. What do we miss when we just seamlessly change things to fit whatever is proper in the current moment? I mean, among other things, we miss the opportunity to look back and see how much progress we've made. Speaking of, I don't know if this is an uncomfortable or a bad segue, but I was going to say, speaking of progress, another uh, piece that you wrote um, had to do about uh, cultural appropriation related to yoga. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, because uh, these themes, I mean, some of the themes in your work, and I think it's true in your fiction as well as in your, in your essays, uh, you know, there's a lot about kind of female sexuality and how is female sexuality you know, we're both more liberated now, but also there are more and more ways of trying to regulate it um, and shame it. Um, cultural appropriation and kind of the limits of that, or is that acceptable, come up quite a bit. And you have written about yoga. You you are a yoga instructor as well. And yoga comes up for 
a critique that it is, you know, it's like the ultimate white girl thing to do, right? And you don't really have a claim to it. Can you talk a little bit about the the yoga wars and and how that fits into questions of cultural appropriation? Sure. I mean, this is a ongoing thing and it kind of, you know, boils over from time to time within the yoga community um, that, you know, obviously yoga comes from India. It's an ancient practice, although there's a lot of disagreement about what parts of it are ancient and what parts are maybe more recent. I think the uh, checks, you know, the uh, anything that costs over $100, that's the ancient you know, <laughs> $100 a month. Fair, fair. Um, and so, you know, because yoga is predominantly practiced, especially in these sort of boutique environments by white women. And because we do live in a moment where if a bunch of um, upper middle class white women gravitate towards a certain thing, we kind of assume that there must be something wrong with it. You know, there is periodically this uh, sort of controversy over should you be allowed to do this? Should you be saying Sanskrit in your classes? You know, what's the deal with these shirts that say namaste in bed all day? Like, is that really all right? Um, you know, all right morally. Obviously, it's like a fashion faux pas. But um, yeah, so, you know, and and people kind of just butt heads over this and people posture and there's lots of sanctimony. And then it kind of goes back underground until the next time that it pops up again. And part of um, the piece that you wrote about it recently, it was um, kind of the government of India or, or officials in India were trying to claim that they kind of get to control yoga, even though not long ago they were getting the UN to declare national or you know international yoga day, and they were constantly trying to export it control it at the same time. Yeah. So actually the um, the attempt to define what yoga is on the part of the Indian government took place in I think 2010. And that was actually a direct response to what this guy Bikram Chowdhury was doing. He was trying to um, copyright. He's, he's the kind of creator or popularizer of hot yoga. Of Bikram, Bikram, Bikram hot yoga. yoga. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he got canceled for sexual harassment right. um, and has tried to launch an apology tour or no, I think it's called No Apologies. So it's not an apology tour. It's just a comeback tour yeah. without but apologies. But it's very warm, whatever it is. The room, he talks, it's always like 100 degrees. 106 degrees, yeah. and it's carpeted. It's disgusting. It's the most disgusting kind of yoga. I'm not supposed to say that as a yogi, but it's really gross. Anyway, um, so he wanted to copyright his 26 poses that he always does in the same sequence. And the Indian government was like, whoa, you know, you don't own this we own this, and um, started trying to kind of define yoga in like a national and legal sense. Um, this didn't really work out for them because it is such a kind of multifarious thing. There's lots of different influences from different times and different places. Even in India now, yoga is not like a uniform thing across the board. So, um, but then, sorry, so we had the, the Indian attempts to define yoga. But now what there is, is there's this kind of second cottage industry of people who are in the yoga community complaining that the yoga community has too many white women practicing and that it's being diluted and so on. And that's almost its like own separate income stream at this point. There's this whole economy around it. And uh, this is where we are now. <laughs> Why do you think there is so much anger specifically directed at upper middle class white women. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of that out there. I mean, obviously we're horrible, but yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, okay. apart from that, I don't know. Uh, I mean, maybe, I mean, do you agree with that? Or is it or, For sure. I mean, I think it's just... Can we blame Gwyneth Paltrow? <laughs> I mean, sure. Well, she she can handle it. Why not? Let's blame yeah. her. I mean, okay. I think, you know, at first it was like, it was white guys. And then it got boring kicking them. They kind of stopped caring. And uh, yeah, we stopped working. <laughs> we stopped you know, doing anything. Yeah. So. Um, but the great thing about like upper middle class white women, they tend to be liberal. And so they have so much guilt. And if you can leverage that, you can make a lot of money off of it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, let's open it up to questions. If you have a question, please come up to the front and uh, ask your question. Oh, this mine. Okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah, come come over. Is it is yeah. it more of a comment right than a here. question? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Wait, is it my birthday? Yes, it is. There, you don't have to look at it. There's, okay. So, are there any podcasts you'd recommend? I'm curious about By the way, technically, that's not a joke because it's not funny. It doesn't have Jesse, to be funny to be a joke. Jesse Single of Blocked and Reported Podcast. So, do you have, uh, what would you like? Yeah. Okay. yeah. I'm curious about the role of, uh, of class in some of this because you talk about white women sort of getting shit on, but in your own travails, like getting yelled at for holding the wrong views in like the young adult community, there's this interesting thing going on where you get yelled at because you don't hold the views that support marginalized people. But the particular views in question are mostly held by held by white liberals. I mean, is that an oversimplification? Like, abolish the police is not something the average person of color believes. It's something white liberals believe. Do you think there's something about like class critique of, of a lot of this cultural stuff? I mean, for sure, you know, it's kind of a thing that's happening now where you've got um, the people who are the, what, the 8% or so. There was that Hidden Tribes survey that, that showed, you know, who's the, like the most progressive. Um, it's all super highly educated white people who are in many cases kind of steamrolling the opinions of people from the communities they claim to protect. But that, I mean, what, that's... What do, what do you mean by that? Um, have, what does that mean? Exactly? I mean, something like defund the police is is very popular amongst, um, you know, like upper upper class, you know, educated white folks who don't have a lot of dealings with the police, who don't have crime in their communities. If you go into a community, um, you know, that's majority black or, you know, majority Hispanic where there's more crime, they'll tell you that they want more police. It's just one of those things. You Some of your earlier works were uh, young adult novels, and you've written about um, your experience with sensitivity readers. Could you explain what sensitivity readers are and how and how that kind of plays out, particularly in, a, in young adult fiction? Yeah. So I haven't had a sensitivity reader, and, and I, I won't um, unless somebody tries to make me, in which case I will eject. But sensitivity readers are um, consultants who are hired to read a book written by somebody who doesn't share the same identity characteristics as their characters. And that person who is meant to be from the same background as the characters will then go back to the author and tell them if they, quote, got it right, if it's authentic, or if it's offensive. Um, obviously, you know, taken to its logical conclusion, this leads to a lot of kind of crude stereotyping. Um, you know, you've got people saying like, well, you know, a a woman would never say this or feel that, um, you know, speaking for half the entire planet doesn't really make a lot of sense, but that's how it works. Hmm. Uh, next question. So as, uh, as somebody that's the son of a dancer, yoga is definitely not just for white women. You <laughs> <laughs> will preach it to the ends of the earth. But uh, what I was really curious about was on your writings when it came to the sensitivity aspect and what you were talking about with the term spastic and spast. Where do you think that kind of policing comes from? That kind of, we need to protect these people by monitoring our language. Because I'll tell you straight up, I went to a special ed school, I'm a special ed kid. We said spaz, we said retard, we said everything. <laughs> Way more than anybody else. Maybe that's why you were in the school. <laughs> you know, it, could be. it could be, but you know what? I embrace it. Okay. Thank you. What is it? I, you know, I think that there is, you know, at least in some cases, this well-intentioned idea that if we can change the way people talk we can change the world. It would be lovely if that were true. But what it really does is just kind of hamstring people and make them afraid to communicate. And I think in doing that entrenches a lot of what's, you know, a lot of what ails us, a lot of what's bad. You know, it's kind of interesting with the spaz comments uh, directed towards Lizzo and Beyonce. It really never came up that it was a white Australian woman kind of policing the speech of black women. Yeah, you know, I felt that Lizzo's response to her contained a subtext um, that kind of reminded everybody who was listening exactly like who was representing which identity. Um, you know, I, I think that it was like a gentle 
hip check to the person who called her out. I don't know that Lizzo gives gentle hip checks. um, (laughs) No, but I mean, it's interesting. And you write about this where she said, you know, as somebody who has been made fun of because she's so large, she she said she overstands, you know, the person's point and that's why she was doing it. So it's kind of an interesting dialogue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Next question. Yeah. So as a woman in a leadership position, can you explain a little bit about the curse of the girl boss and how to avoid it? (laughs) Um, Don't become a girl boss. No. Um, So I don't know. I mean, the the girl boss kind of had her moment, right? And now uh, all of the girl bosses have been knocked off their pedestals. So I don't really know. I mean, are we going to have another round of girl bosses or has that ship sailed? It might be good if it has. I think the thing about the whole kind of girl boss thing was that, um, and, and one of the reasons that it was so easy to topple them was because people wanted so much for them to succeed, even beyond necessarily like what was realistic, what they were actually doing, what they were capable of. Everyone loved this story about a woman succeeding in like a male dominated world. And I'm thinking especially of Elizabeth Holmes here, who, you know, really was just a a grifter and a fraud. Um, But, you know, she was elevated, not least by the media who wanted her story. You know, it was so exciting at the time and they didn't scrutinize it. Um, And so she had this catastrophic fall from grace, which now has kind of painted a lot of other successful women with the same brush, you know, the same kind of contempt and skepticism. Um, So I don't really know how to avoid the curse of the girl boss. Um, Maybe just act like a man. (laughs) And that means, you know, leave the workforce and just, you know, take opioids. Right, right. right. (laughs) The the good thing about Next question. Uh, So my uh, husband and I had an interesting conversation, and I guess it was 2020 when Winston Marshall um, left the band, Mumford and Sons, and um, when I read his essay in Common Sense, my first reaction that I said to Sean was, you know, thank God someone is finally calling out this nonsense and standing by what they believe and having the courage to do it. And his response was, yeah, but it would have been more courageous to say all of this but stay in the band. And it was a really interesting conversation we had, but what I wonder is, was there, is there a precursor in society? Is there something that happened when we became unable to appreciate the art of an artist that we don't agree with, or has it always been this way, that it's just louder now because of social media? Yeah, I think social media has a lot to do with it because, you know, until Till the advent of social media, nobody had this kind of immediate access to the people who were creating the stuff they were consuming. They were really walled off. And I think in some ways it was better that way. Um, now it's like, you know, I mean, just to, to use an example that comes immediately to mind, Stephen King, um, I, I sure love his books and I really wish I had never followed him on Twitter mm. <laughs> um, because I feel differently about him than I did. Yeah, it is. Uh, do you do you stop enjoying somebody's art though once you find out? You know, at, at, at one of the paradig- paradigmatic examples of this is Ezra Pound, the poet who was an actual you know fascist. He did propaganda uh, broadcast for Mussolini during World War II. Um, came back to America, was going to be tried for treason, was put in an insane asylum. Um, you know, but most people would be like. If, if you like Ezra Pound, you're like, hey, you know what? I'm still going to read them. But I mean, are there people who you're just like, I can't, I can't watch them anymore because of their ideological beliefs or their personal behavior? Personal behavior more than ideological beliefs. I don't really care who somebody voted for, but if they're a jerk about it, then I might feel a little bit differently. I mean, so it's- you're done with Scott Bayo, <laughs> right. yeah. or not? Who? Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, he fought in World War II. It's a, it's an old man. Thing, let's go to the next question. Um, so I was thinking about the discussion on violence earlier, and you kind of drew this distinction between what ways that are a sophisticated violence, which is very involved kind of in the plot, and then a more banal, real violence where things don't necessarily make sense, or it's per- seems about like on a scale of things purposeless. And I was kind of wondering, you know, on that discussion of, of 
a fatality of violence, whether or not, like, kind of what your perspective, more of what your perspective is on that more gritty, nonsensical, almost more like terrible form of violence. And also the kind of violence you might see on TV or in video games where it's kind of this mass violence that's not really impactful necessarily towards the plot. I'm wondering if you have an example of uh, like something that you've watched recently that had mass violence that was not impactful. Can you think of anything? Just so that I know what you're talking about. Like, for example, I play video games. And mm-hmm. a lot of video games, you just kind of go around and depending on... And I guess technically in the context of the story, you're trying to progress to some area, but it's like you're just shooting a lot of enemies or something. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's not like in a novel where you might read about some death or some situation that's set up that leads to that death where it seems much more sophisticated, mm-hmm. right? Or I recently watched Breaking Bad, and there was a lot of moments where, like, there were definitely some moments where a situation is set up, and it's, like, a very clearly impactful death or something that was set up for. And then other times, it's just, like, a whole room of people just kind of, like, mowed out for some reason. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I don't play video games, so unfortunately I can't really speak to that. But, um, you know, it strikes me that as you're, you know, progressing through a level where, you know, you've got your, like, the guns in the screen. You can tell I play a lot of video games. Um, (laughs) What do they call it? First-person shooter. Um, And you're making your way through. I mean, I, I suppose that there's, what, like a target practice element to that, um, you know, the, the the last the last game I played like that was Duck Hunt in like 1989. So, you know, apologies. But I think, you know, leaving aside the kind of participatory element, it's it's just rare, you know, when somebody has created out of whole cloth a fictional violent incident for it not to have a certain amount of native intelligence and sophistication just because, you know, it's it has to have been constructed. So much real world violence is impulsive and that's one of the reasons why it's so stupid so much of the time. Um, so, yeah, I haven't, I can't think of anything I've encountered, you know, and I, I do watch a lot of TV um, that has made me think like, well, there's no point to this or it's too much. So you, you really haven't found much gratuitous violence in the way people used to talk about gratuitous nudity or gratuitous sex in a movie. It's. I mean, I've, I've seen lots of gratuitous violence, but I think, you know, in ways that are stylized, like I'm thinking of The Boys. Does anybody watch that show? Um, it's, you know, it's spectacularly violent, but in like extremely interesting and sometimes funny ways. <laughs> So, yeah, I think that there's a lot of room, you know, if you're doing something creative to kind of, um, you know, play in that space and make something more of what's happening than just somebody's head exploding. Next question. So quickly to follow up with his question, when you turn your uh, NES shooter to the side, you will blow the shit out of ducks a lot more efficiently. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. But more to the point, when y'all were talking earlier about Editing media in real time, it made me think about the movie Thank You for Smoking based off of Christopher Buckman's book. And in the postscript of that, I, it really resonated about how uh, Senator Orland Finister from Vermont talked about improving uh, history. So, as someone who thinks about solutions and doing things better, what can we do to prevent people from trying to either improve history or make sure that we don't? edit things from the past that are the truth and make them into another reality that is less than what we know to be true? By physical media. <laughs> That's probably the big one. It sounds stupid to say, but um, but yeah, you know, when you have a, an actual copy of something, um, nobody's going to come into your house in the middle of the night, uh, unless you're very unlucky, and alter it without your knowledge. So It's partly, isn't it, I mean, just you know, kind of on a grandiose level, it's also actually understanding the past, right? And and caring about how things happened. You you said earlier, and I think um, you're exactly right, that you can't know how far we have progressed or perhaps regressed if we don't know what the past was like. And if we're constantly retconning the past in order to fit with what we want, what we feel right now, it just it, it becomes very hard to know where we are at any point in time. Mm-hmm. And it's self-serving, too, because, I mean, there's this whole thing of, uh, you know, everybody thinks that they would have been an abolitionist, you know, circa slavery being illegal. Realistically, probably like one person in this room would have been an abolitionist. And that's unfortunate, but that's the time that it was. 
And we both agree it wouldn't have been Jesse Single. No, definitely yeah. not. He would have owned like 50 yeah. slaves. Yeah. <laughs> Next question. Um, yeah, I'm curious. This is, um, I'm curious about New England, how New England, um, you, so you live in Norwalk, Connecticut, right? Mm -hmm. And I used to live in Massachusetts. My girlfriend used to work in Darien. I spent a lot of time up in that area, which is obviously very different from Maine. But I, I think... This is not the first one of your books to be set in New England, is it right? No, I'm doing them all in New England. Okay. <laughs> so, so I'm curious, because, I mean, you know, like in the... The worst part of America. <laughs> uh, what, what is your question, though? Well, so in The Hound of the Basketballs, for instance, the Moors are like a character in the book. They're, they're like, a, is, is New England a character... In your books. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, certainly the particular dynamics of New England are a character in the books. Um, I'm really kind of fascinated to the point of obsession with, um, you know, insular communities, which especially once you get into Maine, that's a, a huge part of the kind of cultural fabric there. Um, I, I've always loved that if you're not from the individual town, they say that you're from away, you yeah. know? Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, you know, one of the things, since I, I don't do sequels to my books, um, you know, I like for them to exist in one particular world, you know, where they all share the same sense of place and having everything be in Maine is a big part of that. And that sounds a little bit like Stephen King. Yeah, yeah. Right. I'm, I'm coming for him. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Honing in on his territory. <laughs> Thank you. Next question. I, I don't know how much this is going to do for me, but I'll, I'll try to project. Um <laughs> I guess this is sort of a question for both of you. Uh, I'm a former journalist myself, and I kind of left the industry in part Take us because with of... <laughs> I went, they say I went to the dark side, and I'm like, I went to the light side. Um, but I sort of left the industry in part because of all of the bullshit that was going on. Um, and I guess, you know, the more and more that happens, the more and more, like, the, the sort of, like, mass delusion narrative is what there's so few people left to keep in check. And I'm curious how you think, like, you can keep people who have rational beliefs in an industry that is so paralyzed by this psychosis um, so that it doesn't become just completely overrun. What Could you put a little bit more uh, detail on so that, the mass psychosis you know, or delusion? I heard, like, the Twitter on the masthead and, like, we're writing about things that, you know, who's angry about this Minutia in like you know Lizzo's song, who's angry about spaz, and that becomes sort of like the news of the day. There's so much, so so much fewer, um, you know, so few resources being put into actual news now. Of course, reason is obviously, you know, in a different category. But I'm just curious how, like, if you see it writing itself, or um, do you kind of have you lost faith in the the industry as a well? whole? I lost faith in everything a long time ago, so and, uh, and I like talking about Lizzo partly because it's better than talking about politics, which is really fucked up. But um, no, thank you for that question. It's a, I I think there's a lot of uh, reasons to believe that journalism writ large or commentary and investigation and whatnot is you know is proceeding apace. Uh, there's great work being done, and. I don't know that certain institutions will get better, but I think, you know, there's a, I always have more good things I want to read than I have time to read. So that's a pretty good, you know, for me, that means something's going right. But I don't know about you. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to yes and you. One of the things that I've observed is um, even as some of the more storied media institutions have maybe, um, you know, tipped a little too far into insanity, there is so many new um, outlets, uh, you know, and, and individual people moving to Substack and so on, that there's sort of this incoming wave of, you know, an alternate way of doing things, you know, people who are still doing really deep investigative journalism, people who are really committed to excuse me, to objectivity, even though that's kind of in certain nameless newsrooms going out of style, apparently. Um, and so, you know, it may not be that the the legacy institutions that we once respected so much, and I, and I used to be a person who was like, truth has a liberal bias, you know, so um, I've certainly become jaded in that sense about, you know, a lot of what I read now. But I think, you know, those institutions may not 
ever regain what they once were, but if they don't, there will nevertheless be people who are committed to the truth and who are stepping up to produce it. And the thing that's really great that you can see is, you know, as these new outlets pop up, people are absolutely hungry for what they're producing. And I think that's a really, really good sign. Can I ask, uh, thank you for the question. Do you have a politics? Um, I mean, I, I know you're not a libertarian because you say that to me every time we meet. Uh, but, um, but I, you know, uh, your work, I mean, one, one of the things that's interesting is none of it is mean spirited. It's not like you're making fun of people who are bothered by things, but I mean, are, do you, do you have a politics and does that affect either your fiction or your nonfiction? Um, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I guess the pandemic certainly made me more of a libertarian than I was previously um, because of things I experienced. But I, yeah, I don't know. I, um, I don't really, I don't feel like labeling myself right here for mm -hmm. you, Nicholas. Be sorry. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. I could love with that. Next question. Um, I'm curious um, whether you think that the tide is turning when it comes to cancel culture. Um, and that it, whether the younger generations like Gen Z are just getting kind of tired of this policing of language and kind of as like a follow-up, what do you think is the best approach if you're kind of, I guess, like a public figure, maybe even if you're not, if you get canceled or if the mob kind of comes after you, doubling down, do you, do you stay silent? Like, what do you think is the best response to that? Okay, so to answer your last question first, first and foremost, don't apologize unless you did something wrong. <laughs> like, cardinal rule. Um, most, especially on social media, most blow-ups, like, you can also just, like, you don't have to tweet through it. You can just close the browser and not open it for a few days, and, you know, everybody who was bothering you will have moved on to a new target because that's how the dynamics work. Um is the tide turning? I keep thinking that it is, and then something will happen that makes me think that it isn't. And as far as what's happening in the generation coming up, I think that um, there's reason to think that maybe Gen Z is like a lot less sanctimonious um, because they've, you know, they've never known a world where everything they did wasn't online. Um, so I don't know if maybe, I don't know if it's going to be so much of a, as a backswing as just kind of like learning to live with it. Like, you know, this, the threat of cancellation in a minor way will hang over everybody's head and it'll be kind of in the water. And then maybe they come for you and, and it sucks, but then you get through it and you live your life after until the next cancellation. Um, I'm going to just share a story that my, my brother told me he was hanging out at a skate park. There were a bunch of kids there, probably like 13, 14 years old. And one of them was, uh, uh, how old is your brother? <laughs> oh, just, just ask. Uh, no comment. <laughs> no, he, he's, uh, you know, he's a 35-year-old who late in life got into skateboarding. Okay. Whatever. Good sure. for him. Yeah. My brother rules. He's out there. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's out there yeah. hanging out with your kids. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but no, he was, he was keeping his distance but observing the dynamics in this group where, you know, somebody was joking around and one of the kids whipped out a camera and was like, you want to say that again on video? And the guy was like, no. So apparently they're just kind of like using this as quickie blackmail material for each other, which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing that they're so <laughs> casual about it. Um, but also stay away from 14-year-olds is another good yeah. piece of advice. <laughs> yeah. Um, have you ever been canceled? Yeah. What was the cancellation? Um, so it was 2016. I was a young adult fiction writer at the time. And I started to notice that in the young adult fiction world, there was a lot of uh, percolating censoriousness. And particularly, there were petitions being circulated to try and get people's books canceled, um, you know, amongst other writers. And... You know, and, you know, because they had run afoul of this or that orthodoxy. And um, I went on Twitter and without tagging anybody or even mentioning specifically what I was talking about was like, this seems bad. And apparently that was not okay to say. And um, that was that was the beginning of the end of my young adult fiction career. But, you know, good news, I'm now on stage and have written a bunch more books. So everything right. is good. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we have time for one last question. Oh, hi. Um, 
kind of touching upon the uh, Gen Z question. Um, I look around today, and maybe it's my biased view, but it feels like history gets erased, people are learning less and less, uh, things are forgotten, and people's attention spans are growing shorter and shorter. Does it sometimes feel sad or depressing being an author in this world where you know it doesn't feel like people are interested in much long-form literature, or how do you kind of think of it more positively? Um, gosh, I mean, I'm, I'm not writing books for people who aren't interested in reading them. Um, there, fortunately, there's a lot of people who are still really interested in reading. And incredibly, TikTok has been really, really good for actually um, making unlikely books more popular. Um, folks still like to read, even Gen Z, um, despite the fact that they all wear really weird jeans right now. They also like to read. And um, not necessarily what uh, kind of publishing, marketing people, Gesundheit, um, imagine that they want to read. So I think it's very interesting now, actually, that there is this very kind of grassroots, self-directed discovery of literature happening amongst young people. And I hope they continue to do that. That's great. Okay. Final question. First of all, an endorsement for Big Butts and Yoga Pants twerking. Nothing more American than that. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Are you, uh, you're the guy from Lululemon? Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. I'm just curious, uh, the movie You People that's on Netflix is getting a lot of flex right now, and there's an effort to cancel that. Curious if you've seen it and if you have any opinions on it, because as a fan of both black comedy and Jewish comedy, I thought it was great. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people have been uh, some sensibility to that. I haven't seen it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> what a terrible note to end on. I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. Thank you for the recommendation. Thank you, Thank you very much. And uh, uh, with that, we're going to uh, thank you, Kat Rosenfield, for talking tonight. Thank you especially for writing. You must remember this. Highly, highly recommended. Thanks so much. Thank you. This has been the Reason Interview with Nick Gillespie. Before you do anything else, please go to Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts, and sign up for the show. Get it delivered to you automatically. Or make it really easy on yourself and go to reason.com slash podcast and sign up there. And while you're at reason.com slash podcast, why don't you check out the Reason Roundtable and the Soho Forum Debates, our two other podcasts that I think you'll like, especially if you like this one. Thanks for listening.